This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late, like they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by my friend Brian, and we're discussing a movie that he's never seen before. Apocalypse Now from 1979. Brian? Hello, Brian. Hello, Dave. What's up, man? Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. Sweet, dude. So, dude, you've never seen Apocalypse Now? I have never seen Apocalypse Now or then, but later I will have seen it. Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're setting the uh setting the tone early huh <laughs> <laughs> yep that's uh get i i assume this is going to be a very goofy movie so i'm just getting right in there oh absolutely <laughs> so brian uh before we launch into this i just want to acknowledge that like last time we are doing this over skype so any timing or sound issues that come out of this are going to be because of that and not because i am bad at sound stuff not your fault never your fault blame the internet indeed thank you so dude why have you never seen this movie it's on tv Uh, a lot is it a man i don't know it must be on during times or on channels that i'm not uh that i'm not surfing i don't know So you're saying you've never been unemployed for an extended period of time I have not been unemployed for an extended period of, of, of time since I was about 19. So, mm. no. Mm. I, yeah. Well, that it's... Prime, prime TV movie watching time, I guess. And I would say that this is one of the more popular war movies out there. You know? Yeah. As, a, as opposed to Platoon or... I don't even know what other Vietnam movies I would name The Deer Hunter. Like, I think this is the one that shows up on TV the most. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I've seen I've seen Full Metal Jacket. Oh right, um, yeah, yeah. I'm not, uh, you know, I I won't go so far to say I like war movies, but I like good movies, and if they're about war, that's fine. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of surprised that I haven't seen this either. Yeah. Well, okay, I guess that raises the question, why did you pick this movie to catch up with? It just seemed like one of those more classic movies, you know, that uh, it it seemed like something that I would like, so there's not a very good reason um, for me to to not have seen it, and um, 
yeah, something that I would that I would probably enjoy and and get something out of. Cool, cool. Do you know who the director is? Francis Ford Coppola, I believe. And would you say you're a fan of Francis Ford Coppola's work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I liked the first two Godfathers. Did you catch the third um, one? I caught it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Right on. I chose my words carefully. Cool. Um, yeah. Um, and I believe this also has Marlon Brando in it. Is that right? It does. Okay. So, yeah, I like Brando. For the most part, I like Coppola. Um, so, yeah, it just seems like a movie that should be in my, my knowledge base. All right. Well, all right. Cool, cool. Well, Brian, before we get started watching this thing, I got a few questions for you. First one being, what are you expecting from this movie? Well, I know that this movie is about the Vietnam War, which, um, is it, is that right? Uh, I am not going to give you any more spoilers. (laughs) Okay. Um, so given that, um, I'm expecting there to be some war. I, (laughs) I think there's, there's probably going to be a lot of carnage, um, and probably a lot of atrocities um, mm. that mm. sort of rightfully seems to be a theme um, in in the movies about the Vietnam War that I've seen. Um, there's probably going to be some some inner turmoil or conflict among the characters about maybe what they're doing there and. Um, you know, both yeah. both uh, in the in the in the geopolitical sense as well as uh, personally having to live with their own um, their own choices as soldiers. Um, so I'm I'm sort of expecting that for there to be some uh, conflict in uh, in more ways than one. Maybe a little soul searching. Definitely some soul searching. Yeah, Brian, who do you think is in this movie? Besides Marlon Brando, uh, yeah, Brando, and then I know uh, another Godfather um, alum, I believe, is uh, Robert Duvall. Okay, um, he was he was the consigliere in in the Godfather movies, right? Or yeah, thinking of someone else. Okay, no, no, you're right, Tom, Tom, the consigliere, okay. the adopted son. Yep, he's yep. awesome. I love that character. And, uh, I believe the great Martin Sheen is in this as well. Interesting. Not just Martin Sheen, but the great Martin Sheen. You're a West Wing fan then, I take it? I'm just a Sheen fan. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I qualified him as great. He, I guess, it's, he is I guess great. it's the West Wing. You know, he's very presidential. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's the best part of that show. Yeah. Um, so... Looking forward to good things from. I mean, between these three, you you know you have some real heavy hitters. So I'm I'm oh, expecting yeah. some great acting here. That's I mean that that's a healthy cast already. Um, is there any music that you associate with this movie, Brian? Um, I I can't remember if this is the film with the 
Oh God, I'm gonna I'm gonna screw up the name. Is it Flight of the Valkyries? Why don't you sing it for me? Oh boy! Just so I can be sure I know exactly what you're referring to. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. Okay, I. Uh, Come on, man. No, I'm blank. I'm blanking. I'm blanking. Are you <laughs> sure? All I can all I can think of is this is the Star Wars theme now. All right. Well, if you think you can remember it. We're going to have to double yep. back because this prediction won't count if you can't sing it. Damn it. Okay. Yeah. I'm putting my foot down on this. I want to hear you. Hear you do it. <laughs> I I want to hear me do it too. I'm not I'm not backing out for for lack of wanting to try. It's just uh I I'm not sure is this is this the film with the where they have the speakers on the helicopter and they're going over the jungle and the the Music is see that's that's the song that I'm thinking of, um, but I could be thinking of some other Vietnam movie. Well, I think it's entirely possible that this is the movie where that happens. Have you seen that, like parodied or reenacted or homaged in other places? Yeah, I'm, I want to say Tropic Thunder um, has that kind of. Uh, aesthetic um if not a direct parody of that um of that scene um well yeah i could be i could be mixing up my my war movies i'm not sure now i really want to know well don't worry you're gonna find out brian i have a follow-up question which is you say you're a fan of martin sheen but are you a fan of charlie sheen i would have to say yes his early work i mean i don't really i guess he's nowadays he's most well known for like two and a half men or something but i liked uh you know major league i was gonna say major league hot shots perhaps um, hot shots um wait was that him or emilio estevez oh that was charlie are you an emilio estevez fan Oh boy! Because uh, I what, what was he in Mighty Ducks? From my knowledge, it's Mighty Ducks, and that is yeah. it. And granted, okay, well, Mighty I'm Ducks, a fan is of Mighty Ducks, Mighty so. Ducks. So yeah, yeah. I guess I, I yeah, I guess I, I celebrate this whole damn family. Yeah. Well, all right, cool. Um, Brian, are there any quotes that you know about that are from this film, or maybe from this film? Again, I I feel like I just have a, a a just like a a hodgepodge of war movies in my specifically Vietnam war, war movies in my head, and I can't differentiate um, one from the other. But what comes to mind is um, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Okay. Now, what do you think the speaker means when he says that? I mean, I think he's probably, in a, in a way, it's probably uh, a coping mechanism on his part to deal with the fact that his his troops are, you know, decimating the the actual people below um, by making a making a joke, or he could just be a, a super sicko who actually relishes in the idea that he's, uh, you know, burning people to death. I don't know. We'll see. Yes, we will. Okay, so I have one last sort of specific question about the film. 
And that's not actually about the film itself. What I'm wondering, Brian, is what do you know, if anything, about the making of this movie? Oh, I don't know anything about it. You haven't heard um, anything about the production or anything like that? No, no. I. Uh, this feels like a real, uh, a real Easter egg. Um, but no, I don't know if it was... If it was filmed in Vietnam, if it was filmed in Hawaii or or some other jungle, um, yeah, I can't say that I know. Okay, and that's fine. You don't need to know anything like that in order to go in and watch it. But it is something we're going to talk about in part two. So I just thought I'd check that first. Well, all right, man. I guess that about does it. The last thing I really want to know is how much has this movie been hyped for you? Like, did you know a lot of people who were big fans of it? No, I can't say I can't say that anyone has ever specifically recommended this movie to me. Um, maybe that's why I've never seen it before. I, I get the sense that it was like critically acclaimed and it's very well respected, which is sort of the source of my interest in it. But um, personally, I don't know anyone who would uh, or who has uh, expressed themselves as being a big fan of it. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And um, no one's told you anything like to the negative either, said anything about like anything that they thought might be bad about the film, like certain performances or certain scenes. Mm, No, no, I really haven't heard one way or the other about it specifically. Okay. Okay. Well then, Brian, um, I think we should get ready to watch it oh uh, this is uh more for my own curiosity but do you happen to know what this this movie is based on is it a book it is a book okay but it is not a book about vietnam but we'll talk about that a little more in part two that's interesting uh, because it's not really super relevant to your enjoyment of the film so okay we'll save it for the next part But, uh, yeah, Brian, I hope you cleared off the next six hours because we are going to go watch Apocalypse Now. I've set the day aside. Nice. All right, well, let's fucking do it. All right. And so we're back. Yes, we are. And I guess I should say, because of the magic of the internet, we did not actually watch this at the same time this time. So I watched this last night. You just finished watching, right? Yeah, uh, I just finished watching here on the West Coast. Kind of a weird movie to watch in the morning. Uh, (laughs) That's when I had the time. So, um, yeah. Cool. What'd you think, dude? Um, This movie was phenomenal i thoroughly enjoyed it you know not to skip to the uh the punchline too much but yeah i am very very glad that uh that i watched this awesome i'm really glad to hear that well in that case let's get started so i just want to say up front that there is a lot about this movie like in background and behind the scenes stuff so Buckle up, because this is going to be way more than normal. (laughs) Okay. All right. So to start with, um, you said you were not familiar with 
the source material or what this was based on, right? Well, uh, funny story, actually. Um, I wasn't when we had our our pre-film talk. And then okay. um, as as we mentioned, you know, we're... Um, you know, we're, we watch this separately. So I was looking for uh, sources to, to to watch this online, and I searched for Apocalypse Now in Amazon Prime, and the first thing that came up was Heart of Darkness. <laughs> so that kind of uh, that gave it away for me a little bit that this was based on Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. It is indeed. And uh, interesting little coincidence, when I was doing my pre-show research, one of the episodes I recorded just recently was about Alien, and in my pre-show research, I discovered that Joseph Conrad also wrote a book called Nostromo, which is where you get the name of the ship in Alien. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Also, I guess the uh, ship in Aliens, the Sulaco, is also a Conrad reference, so cool. Um, have you read Heart of Darkness? I haven't. So it, it didn't it didn't give away too much. I know roughly that it centers around uh the Belgian Congo. Yep. Um uh, which I know a little bit about, but uh yeah, I actually haven't read Heart of Darkness, so I didn't have that much um preconceived going into the film. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's good. Um, I'm going to give a quick little uh, treatise on Heart of Darkness, just uh, briefly, just to catch you and everyone else up on what this movie is coming from. Sure. So, as you said, uh, Heart of Darkness is about the Belgian Congo, uh, which is a Central African colony of the Belgians that was notoriously brutal and bloody in the book. A steamboat captain named Marlowe is sent upriver in the Belgian Congo to collect ivory from a man named Kurtz. Kurtz, along the way, is referred to by all the people he meets, and he's presented as this kind of paragon of European virtues and ideals. He's like this great man who's great at everything, and everyone's really impressed with him. But, um, along the way, the story start, kind, kind of starts to change a little bit, and by the time he gets there and meets Kurtz, it's clear that Kurtz has been corrupted and destroyed, as are we all, <laughs> in the heart of darkness. Okay. Along the way, as he's going upriver, Marlowe sees terrible, terrible things, and these things keep getting worse and more nightmarish the farther up the river he goes. And the idea here is that the journey upriver is about the progressive breakdown of civilization and it is the journey into the deepest, darkest recesses of the human soul. So, some people, um, among them very prominently, the author Chinua Achebe. Did you ever read um, any of his work? Yes. Yeah, he did, like, Things Fall Apart. Yes, that's what I read. Things Fall Apart. I, I read that in high school. Yeah, me too. Well, um, Achebe argues that the book is racist, that it presents Africa and Africans uh, it associates those things with savagery and the stripping away of civilization. The counter-argument is usually that he's replacing Marlowe, the character's perspective, with Conrad's perspective as the author. Hmm. So 
if it were to if you were to say it wasn't racist, I guess the argument is that in going to these places like the Congo, it puts the lie to our pretensions to civilization. It strips away our front, and that once we're in these places, we give ourselves permission to act like savages, to be worse than the locals, and actually to be savage to the locals. Mm. So the question, I guess, is, is the book racist or is it portraying racism? I read the story. I don't. It was a long time ago, and I don't remember it very well, so I'm not sure which of those two sides of the argument are correct. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, I noticed uh, Conrad invented mockingly this group in the book that he makes fun of called the International Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs. Okay. So I, I think that indicates that he's saying that it's really the European hypocrisy that's the target here. But they, then again, you know, Conrad was a a colonial era European. So if the book really is actually pretty racist that wouldn't surprise me at all right right but i guess you know it does present this central question of is it this place that makes us savage or is it us that we just become savage because we go to this place and allow us to be savage you know so that's the idea there so in the book kurtz clearly goes crazy and he dies of malaria insane he has this uh either written or stated this statement exterminate all of the brutes which in apocalypse now is portrayed as kurtz's writing on a paper drop the bomb exterminate them all right right and then kurtz's last words rather famously are the horror the horror kurtz in the novel in in the novel yeah 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 and then also in apocalypse now that makes it to the translation so that's the story. You can see why it is an attractive idea for transitioning to the Vietnam setting because European colonialism gets replaced kind of neatly with American interventionism. Absolutely. It's it's a good idea. Did it work out? Let's find out. <laughs> Let's. So this film shoot was famously difficult. It is, in fact, the quintessential tough movie shoot. It was so bad, in fact, that a documentary was made about it called Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse. That may have been what you saw on uh, Amazon Prime. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I It, it, was, a, it was a film, actually, yeah, because I was looking in, in Prime Video, uh, so maybe it was right. actually Hearts of Darkness. Yeah, so this was shot by uh, Coppola's wife, Eleanor, who was making a video diary during the making of it. And from her footage, they were able to create a documentary about this incredibly troubled movie shoot. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit before we launch into the movie. Okay. So in talking about it afterwards, Francis Ford Coppola said, We had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little we went insane. My film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like someone is uh, taking on the, uh, the the roles a little bit here. Oh, just wait. <laughs> um, here's how it went down. Francis Ford Coppola created his production company, American Zotrope, 
in order to break outside of the then dominant studio system. And the idea is that by financing movies themselves, uh, directors and creators would have more creative control, right? So that's a great idea if you're an artist, but it also meant that he had to raise the money himself, which when it started was $13 million. Coppola invested a lot of his own money, and he also used his personal assets as collateral on loans. So when this started shooting, there was a lot of pressure for it to succeed for him, financially speaking. Wow, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Uh, The idea actually originates from the late 60s. It was written up by this guy, John Milius, who's a pretty impressive screenwriter. He wrote the Dirty Harry movies, uh, Red Dawn, The Hunt for Red October, and he even did some punch-up on Jaws, including, depending on who you ask, Quint's uh, Indianapolis speech. Yeah. And uh, originally set to direct this film was George Lucas. How interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The thing was, this was in the late 60s, so their plan was to go to Vietnam and shoot the Vietnam War movie in Vietnam in the midst of the Vietnam War. It's a dumb idea, and studios were not down with it, so it never happened. And rightly so. Then you get the mid-70s, and Francis Ford Coppola is coming off the success of the first two Godfather movies, and he's like, I'm going to make this thing myself. So he does, and they decide to shoot it in the Philippines instead of in Vietnam. It's a smart move, but there is also a guerrilla war. Yes, yeah. The thing is, there's also a guerrilla war happening in the Philippines, and that's going to come up again in a minute. Okay. (laughs) So here are some of the problems they ran into when trying to make Apocalypse Now. Number one, the person originally cast in the main role as Captain Willard was Harvey Keitel. They shot a week's worth of footage with him, and then Francis Ford Coppola decided to replace him. So they had to scrap a week's worth of shooting right off the bat and redo it. They get Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen agrees to do it, but he comments that he's 36 years old, he's really out of shape, and he's just not very healthy. He's He even says he was smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. Well, and he uh, smoked, I, it, it struck me how much he smoked in this film. Like, it seemed like every single scene he was smoking, and they were like not movie cigarettes. They were real 70s movie cigarettes. Yeah. And I was like, man, <laughs> right. this guy must be a real heavy smoker to be smoking this heavily in this film. He was indeed. Keep that in mind. That's going to c- sort of come back up, or at least his health will. Shooting's kind of lagging, and it drags on into summer, and evidently the Philippine summer is no joke, and it starts to get really hot and unpleasant for people. The helicopter scenes. In order to get that done, so the the head of the Philippines at the time, the leader, was this dictator named Ferdinand Marcos, and they made a deal with him to get actual Philippine military helicopters to shoot these scenes. That's great, and it looks awesome in the movie, but... Shooting it was a nightmare because, number one, there was a guerrilla war on, which meant that the pipe, the pilots were cycled in and out every day because they were going on missions, and that ruined any ability for them to do rehearsal or planning with any individual pilot because they'd just be gone the next day. Oh, wow. Also, in the middle of shooting these incredibly elaborate and expensive battle scenes, occasionally the pilots would get called away to actually go bomb real places 
So they'd just be in the middle of a shoot, and all of a sudden the the helicopters would just veer off and disappear over the mountains to go get in an actual fight. Oh my goodness! Hopefully, uh, yeah. they they are able to keep track of which <laughs> which scene they're in at any given time. Not really. <laughs> they just had to kind of wing it. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. At some point, Francis Ford Coppola decides that the original ending was not what he wanted, so he decides to rewrite it. The problem is that uh, he'd already secured Marlon Brando for the role of Colonel Kurtz and had given him a $1 million advance to secure him, but Brando wouldn't give him any time to do the rewrite and was gonna basically just walk away with the $1 million, so he had to deal with that, too. Hang on to Brando being difficult, because that's going to come back up. Okay. So, the rainy season hits, which I guess in the Philippines is no joke. Coppola at first is kind of like, well, it rained in Vietnam, let's just film in the rain. It'll be real. Uh, the, The problem, though, is that a typhoon hits, a serious one, and all of the sets were destroyed. Also, civilization in the Philippines was destroyed. During the documentary, they're all like, yeah, all our sets were ruined. Oh, and also people were standing in the ruins of their homes. That was sad, too. Oh, my God. But anyway, yeah, I know. But all the sets were indeed destroyed. And they actually built a lot of these things. Like the Kurtz compound, they actually built that for real. That wasn't even, like, that fake. Like, they said the each brick in that temple was 300 pounds. Whoa, I so. I actually thought that was maybe a real a real ruin in in Cambodia. So they that, it looks incredibly real, yeah, right? Yeah, well, it's because they design. actually built it. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess they built it twice because it got destroyed in a typhoon, and then they had to make it again. That sounds expensive. It does. So production shut down for two months when that happened. So at this point, the movie is three million dollars over budget which is in 1970s money so in today's money that's like 10 billion dollars united artists agrees to front some more money but francis ford coppola will have to pay it all back if the movie doesn't make 40 million dollars which is like 1.3 trillion in today's money in today's money yes exactly (laughs) so They shoot another scene, which is a scene on this French plantation. It's incredibly expensive, and they they had to build the plantation and get all these set decorators, and all these actors had to be flown in to be French people. They shoot the whole thing. Francis Ford Coppola hates the results. They scrap it. So that's another thing on the trash heap. So let's. uh, this seems like a good moment, though, to talk a little bit about Francis Ford Coppola as a director. What do you think of his directing? Uh, in general or in this film specifically? Well, let's start with in general. Are you a fan of his work? Have you seen any of his other films? Yeah, I think I I mentioned that I'd seen the Godfather films. I'm actually not too familiar with uh, any of his other work, though. Yeah, so I've seen all three of the Godfathers, and I've seen this. I don't think I've seen any of his other movies either. I know um, some of the more well-thought-of films that he's made apart from those there's the conversation and i guess this movie isn't necessarily well thought of but it has its defenders he made a dracula movie okay do you remember when that came out bram stoker's dracula with keanu reeves and winona (laughs) ryder directed by francis ford coppola 
I would have uh, never thought of that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. No, I I actually haven't seen that either, but I I'm aware of it. Um, but okay. Yeah, you could have given me a, a lot well, of guesses, and I wouldn't. Don't have worry about that. Gotten there. Okay. Well, so that's him in general. What did you think of the directing in this movie? I I thought he did a really good job. Uh, as I said, I thoroughly enjoyed this, um, and yeah, I mean, I I really don't have any complaints about it as a, in terms of him as a director okay. hmm. yeah i mean i think this movie is amazing i i've been on record about that so i i think he wound up doing a great job but what it took to get there was pretty fun so going back to the documentary George Lucas referred to the way his close friend, Francis Ford Coppola, directs as uh, intuitive, which means, from as much as I can tell, it seems like he doesn't direct actors very well, which is kind of ironic given that he's known for the Godfather movies, which is such an actor showcase. But during this documentary, you see his way with the actors, and a lot of it is him being like, you bring as much of yourself to this role as you can. And as an actor, you should be providing all of the the motivation and the idea behind the scene as you can. Bring, you know, you do it, basically. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. But if you want a firmer hand as an actor, that maybe is a little frustrating. Uh, Martin Sheen, in particular talked about how he had some trouble finding the through line to the Captain Willard role, and he he felt like Francis Ford Coppola kind of left a lot of that work just on his shoulders to find himself. And I think, and we can talk about this more when we talk about Martin Sheen's performance, but I think that comes through in the movie. Uh, Willard himself is maybe a little bit of a cipher. His character doesn't, I think, come across very clearly in every part of the film. There's some parts where it does, but it's not consistent, I don't think. What do you think? I I actually liked his performance um, and was impressed by it quite a bit at certain times. In particular, I mean, in the, in the sort of intro scene, um, oh, yeah. it really gripped me when he was, you know, after he had punched the mirror and he was kind of rolling around the sheets in his own blood and stripping himself down and and crying um he, he seemed like he was truly tormented in that moment and it did a really good job of like bringing me into this character actually cool cool i like that scene a lot too you thought you thought that was maybe his strongest work in the in the film it was certainly the most emotional for me which I thought was, I guess you could say strong. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of the film, like particularly, you know, all the way up the river, he, he just sort of broods a lot. Yes. You know, he, he just sort of like is looking, you know, kind of scowling at what's going on around him, but he's not emoting or giving up that much necessarily. He's a cold motherfucker. He's cold. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. 
See, for me, I, I feel like the best character beats for Willard come in these very brief but very striking bursts of violence. So there's mm-hmm. him grabbing the supply guy at the USO show, and then especially during the boat massacre when he just executes that wounded woman. Yeah. And he has that incredibly cold kiss-off line. What was it like? I told you not to stop. Now let's keep moving. You know, like just yeah, that exactly. fuck you line to the captain. Right. I, I Like, this is your fault. Yeah, <laughs> this is, you know, you, you did this. Yes. And, and also just apart from those moments, he's very reserved, but then you see this horrifying violence kind of just come out of him seemingly from nowhere. It makes him a much more frightening character. I like those moments. And, you know, as a kid, I liked those moments because in my immature, like, adolescent boy mind, I was like, man, he's such a badass. Whereas now, now I'm more like, this is such a terrifying person who you're only seeing glimpses of. Yeah, who he really is, seeing, you know, right. He he keeps a straight face most of the time, but he's actually a horribly damaged and possibly psychopathic person. Exactly. Yeah, I just I kind of wish I got m- more of that out of him through the rest of the movie. But we'll we'll touch on a few other things about his performance later. I want to bring it back to Francis Ford Coppola now, though, just more about his uh, intuitive directing style. Uh, Another thing I noticed in the doc was that he allowed a lot of improvising by the cast, which can be good. You can find good stuff that way. And he also, he kind of wrote and directed that way too, just very kind of on the fly. And that's cool for finding things in the moment, but there's also an aspect to which it lacks discipline and it didn't seem like there was enough planning involved. One person even said that he would show up on set to do work and it would just be like scenes to be shot tba no oh, oh boy right and so yeah, you know this this does not seem like the kind of film that should be improvised a lot either it seems like something that needs to be very carefully orchestrated exactly yeah pe- their people need to know exactly what they're doing yeah and so i mean i guess i can't fault the end result because i love this movie most of it anyway but, um, it, you know, especially given the struggles they were going through keeping the movie on track, that might not have been the best directing style. But, you know, he was dealing with a lot, and he ultimately made a great film, so who the hell am I to <laughs> criticize, right? Yeah, the end, the end product is, is definitely there. So, here's another thing that was going on on set. Rampant drug use. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, the the actor who played Lance, the surfer, he was a very interesting interview during the documentary. He said he was high most of the time during the filming of this movie. Well, okay, that didn't necessarily detract from his performance, though, because he played high <laughs> in a in a realistic way. Yes, he did, and we'll talk about that. But uh, I, one thing I thought was amusing, though, was that um, he said he was tripping during some of the scenes he acted in in this movie. But interestingly enough, not during the bridge scene when his character is actually tripping. Oh, man. I know. But don't worry. <laughs> you got it backwards there, Lance. I know. But don't worry, Brian. He said, nonetheless, he was high, drunk, and on speed while filming that scene. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. And but he's got something in the tank. Exactly. Exactly. 
And he said that this was like absolutely rampant on set, both in the cast and the crew. Speaking only for myself, I would never accuse Francis Ford Coppola of anything, but there were a few moments when he is shown to be like rewriting some of the script where he behaves in a manner that some might describe as a little cokey. Like, he, he's just, he's just like, okay, and so then, Kurtz is gonna come over here, and it's gonna all blow up like that, and Willard's gonna say, how could you do something like this? Oh, and it's gonna be awesome, you know, just... Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it could just be an artist's high, you know, I've certainly gotten excited when I've created something, but I don't know, it's, it's the Hollywood of the 70s, so I feel comfortable making assumptions. Yeah, mid to late 70s is pretty much the high era of coke there so it it wouldn't be surprise surprising at all exactly but again i am not saying anything one way or another please don't sue me this is this is definitely getting back to (laughs) if he's still alive oh yeah he listens he listens so the hotel scene uh you said that was your favorite scene from martin sheen um i actually i don't know if it was my favorite but i think it was his Maybe it was his best, um, his best acting, his best acting. Uh, and it certainly served to get me interested in the movie immediately. Oh, uh, yes, that's I'm going to seize on that at a later point, but I'm glad that's how you phrased it. I'm going to jump in here now, though, to also say this scene is really good, but I don't think it's a good example of Martin Sheen's acting. And that's because in that scene, Martin Sheen is not acting. Everything that you see in that scene really happened, and they just filmed it. You mean he really got drunk and cut himself punching a mirror? So, according to Martin Sheen, the scene was filmed either on or the day after his 36th birthday. He was drunk as shit to the point where he said he could barely stand up. He actually punched that mirror and cut his thumb, and all of that bleeding is his blood. Wow. Yeah. That, that I mean, I guess that's the hallmark of a great actor. Sure. He's really committed to the <laughs> to, to Can't the fault the finished product. Sheen, in the moment, insisted that they keep shooting. You know, Francis Ford Coppola was like, do you want to get, like, a doctor to look at it? And he was like, no, we keep shooting. But to a certain extent, what they were filming was just Martin Sheen having an actual breakdown on camera. I saw some of the unedited, unmovified raw footage of this, and it's a little distressing. Oh, wow. It's in the documentary, which uh, I keep referring to it. You absolutely should see it. It's fascinating. But yeah, it's he is actually like he's drunk he's bleeding he's like rolling around and calling out these barely coherent barely intelligible words and just sort of like weeping people said that on set they were not entirely sure if he would attack francis ford coppola or not and they were worried he would just lunge at him oh my god yeah it's so everything you see during that part that is all 100 percent real Wow. Now, was this um, was this filmed out of order? Was this already well into the, the filming of the movie? I mean, why did he have this breakdown? Or do we know? We don't entirely know. 
Uh, part of it had to do with just how wasted he was from the birthday, I guess. And also, it seems like everybody was having a tough time. He also says that he was drunk. I think it's possible you could interpret that as quote-unquote drunk. Could have been more. Yeah. But okay. it's hard Maybe, to say. Uh, little coke withdrawal. Could be. Could have been anything. I mean, I don't actually know. I'm just, you know, speculating. Yeah. But uh, it could have been, too, that he was having a bit of a health crisis. Because shortly after they filmed that scene, Martin Sheen had a heart attack. At 36? At 36. A very serious heart attack. insane. Yeah. Wow. And I actually learned something during the watching of the documentary from my dad, who is a doctor and was watching it with me. He mentioned that uh, if you have your first heart attack as a young man, like say 36 years old, it's actually more dangerous to have a heart attack that young versus as an old person. Did you know this? No, I this I haven't heard that before. He says that it's because um, as you grow older, your heart and your body develop more kind of secondary paths for the blood flow. Whereas as a young man... Anastomoses. Say what? They're called anastomoses. Oh, well, there you go. I'm still they're, learning. They're those, those, backup, uh, those backup pathways. Yeah. Well, so he says that if you're a young man, like, say, a 36-year-old, you don't have as many of those. So if you get a blockage and a heart attack in one of your main arteries, you're fucked. And oh, wow. Martin Sheen was so close to death, he actually had last rites performed on him by a priest. Wow. Yeah. Well, it is the Philippines. True. But he did manage to survive, which is great. But he he did have to... he continued shooting? No. This was... So he spent five weeks in recovery. During that time, they shot as much as they could with his stunt double or, you know, whatever scene double they could... Body double. Yeah, whatever scene double they could work with. Uh, So they tried to get as many kind of like master shots and distance shots and establishing shots as they could without filming the close-ups and then when martin sheen came back five weeks later they tried to double back and get all the the in-close shots with him right okay but i mean he did take some some time off to rehab but he did then go back and film continue filming yes he did and i mean only five weeks later that seems pretty quick after a life-threatening heart attack but it Looks like he was okay afterwards. And I mean, you see, it's actually kind of crazy seeing, I I associate Martin Sheen most with the West Wing, so it's kind of nuts to see him so young and at least from an uh, eyeball sense fit and actually kind of hot. Right. Yeah, he looks good on the outside, but who knew that his internal organs are falling apart? Well, they did say that he once he came back after the heart attack, he looked pretty good. He was pretty fit and healthy looking. So, you know, and I mean, he's still with us now. So I guess whatever he did to pull himself together afterwards worked. Hey, maybe uh, maybe it turned his life around after that. Maybe didn't he become a Scientologist, though? Oh, God. I hope not. I hope not either, but I don't know. Anywho. Please don't come after us. (laughs) Yeah, now we actually are in danger of getting sued. A little more about other actors. Uh, Dennis Hopper is in this movie. In the behind... I know! Yeah. I I could not believe that that was him. He looks so different with hair and thin 
and playing a very out of type role like he never plays manic you know well um very strange yeah um i have to say in the behind the scenes footage he as a person at least at this point in time seems a lot like his character he just has this manic hippie-ish way about him he's like okay man i'll just do whatever you tell me whatever the line is man i'll say it this is this is him in the documentary not uh, right in that character like like they're not shooting this is just him and uh he also appeared to be having a lot of trouble learning his lines and they never come out and say it but in their interactions i was picking up a lot of tension between him and francis ford coppola it really seemed like they were not getting along it was sort of like him being like hey man i just want to say the lines that you're telling me to say yeah well then give me a chance to i'm trying to fucking tell you what the line is and you're not fucking listening you're just talking over me all right man just what it you know it didn't look like it was a good relationship (laughs) oh boy yeah and so lastly we've got the man himself marlon brando your prediction in terms of the cast of this movie was pretty spot on Marlon Brando, Martin Sheen, and Robert Duvall are all in this movie. Uh, what do you think of Brando? Um, he was a very uh, intriguing character, and I think his his acting was excellent. Hmm. Um, as, as they described him, he sort of was this weird poet warrior guy. So he was like. A little bit hard to get a handle on, I think, which I think was part of the idea. Um, you know, he's just sort of he he speaks very poetically. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a weird guy. I don't know. What did you think of him? Um, I think we'll delve into that maybe a little bit more specifically when we get to that part discussing the plot of the movie. Uh, before I talk about that, though. I'm going to tell you about the behind-the-scenes stuff with Marlon Brando. Oh, there's behind-the-scenes with everybody. Okay, I got it. This is the last one, don't worry. Then we'll actually get into the film proper. (laughs) So, Marlon Brando arrives on set. This is like the last thing they're shooting. They're shooting the ending. And he was very overweight. (laughs) Yeah. That's one thing that did strike me, actually. Um because all the all the photos of him, you know, in the in the dossier that Willard is looking through are like fit, you know, Brando in like on the waterfront shape. Yeah, he used to be you know, hot. like looking looking amazing and then he's bald and fat when they finally find him. It's like, oh. Right. It's the Godfather. So, well, even worse than the Godfather, honestly. So, Brando arrives really heavy and the real problem is that he's shy about it. So, like, Francis Ford Coppola is like, okay, this wasn't what I was expecting, but I can work with this. We'll just make Kurtz this, like, incredibly gluttonous guy who's, like, given himself over to temptation. So he's, like, he's got, like, a girl on each arm, and he's just eating fruits and mangoes, and, like, he's just let himself go, right? Brando is like, no, no. It's like hedonism bot. Exactly. But Brando didn't want to be portrayed as fat, and that's why he's so obscured throughout the movie, why he's always in, like, shadows. Yeah. He's constantly cloaked in shadows. Even even when the only time they show his full body, it's just his silhouette. Right. And it's because he, he didn't want to be shown as 
as fat as he was, and they had to try and work around that. So, anyway, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, as we mentioned, had this idea to create a new ending, and he wanted to work with Brando on it. But when Brando had arrived, the other problem was that he'd never read Heart of Darkness like Coppola asked him to. And so they're trying to come up with lines for him, but they have no lines for him to do, and he doesn't really know what the character is. And the clock is ticking before their funding runs out, because they are really close to the edge here. And if they go over time, then the, like, the cost, the overruns get really fucking serious. So Francis Ford Coppola is basically like, okay, fuck it. We're just going to shoot this in three weeks improv And they do. And that's why, I mean, it's cool to hear that you liked it, but some of what Brando is saying is kind of just improv nonsense. And some of the B-roll that you see in the doc is like, he'll just be like spouting nonsense. He'll just be like, and then I killed her and I was walking past her. I swallowed a bug. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there's another part where he's like, I was taking a walk past the gardenias and I saw a body and I can't think of any more dialogue to say. Oh my god. I know, it's just <laughs> I, I just imagine poor Francis Ford Coppola at this point. This does this comes right at the end of the documentary and it does appear that this is the moment where he finally did sort of snap a little bit and go crazy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh but you know, so that's that's it for the major background stuff. There will be more, but I think now it is finally time for us to launch into the actual film. Sorry, there's one more thing I want to talk about. Uh, the cast. We've talked about Sheen. We'll talk about Brando. We've mentioned Dennis Hopper, and we'll talk about him more, but some of the other casts. So, did you notice Harrison Ford? Lawrence Fishburne? Well, okay. Lawrence fucking Fishburne. I'm sorry. <laughs> Larry Fishburne. Larry? Uh, is he credited as Larry Fishburne? He's credited as Larry Fishburne. Larry Fishburne was 14 years old when he was cast in this movie. I, he looks it. I mean, he's incredibly young. It took me a while. I think it was, I was like three quarters of the way. I was wondering if you'd notice at all. The the movie, and I, I was like, is that freaking Lawrence Fishburne? But it was the teeth, <laughs> the teeth that gave him away. <laughs> Did you notice Harrison Ford? Of course. I, and in like such a minor role, too. I, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know Harrison Ford was going to be in this, and he wasn't. Right. Like, he just, I know. He had five minutes. It really sticks out. Uh, he plays a surprisingly convincing nerd, though. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of. The, the glasses mean, Indiana are doing Jones a lot of is kind work. of a nerd, too. Yes. Which is also true with Indiana Jones. Slap some glasses and, and give that guy a little pomade, and he's he's full bookish nerd totally totally <laughs> professor jones yeah uh he is he's all his character is named colonel lucas in a reference to george lucas just throwing that out there oh boy yeah and we'll we'll cycle back to some of the other actors when we talk about the plot i think let's get into the fucking plot of this movie finally let's do it oh my god oh so first of all your quote predictions some of these were very correct i love the smell of napalm in the morning is in this movie yeah i was very happy when that when that one came up it smells like victory it does not though appear to be a coping mechanism for the speaker uh he is a person who psychologically appears to be doing just fine 
Does he? Well, I don't know. Okay, okay. Um, I mean, yeah. Well, okay. We we can. I don't know if we're going to go in order or what, but we will. I just I wanted to throw some of the uh, predictions that you made out there. Um, Sure. And also a couple other quotes that I like from this movie are uh, "terminate with extreme prejudice," and I do like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was funny when that when that one came up. I was like, similar to. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It's like I I've heard these things even though I haven't seen this film. Exactly, it's like they're yeah. just kind of in the zeitgeist somehow. Like I've just sort of absorbed them somehow. Yeah, yeah totally. The line you are an errand boy sent by grocery clerks to collect on a bill, I think is a very interesting line. Yeah, I I hadn't heard that before, but I wrote that down. I think that was maybe the Best, best line in the whole film oh really yeah i might agree with you and then these aren't quotes but they're sort of tropes that come out of this movie one is the martin sheen voiceover it's incredibly good voiceover i like sort of how hard-boiled it is and especially in the early scenes it makes me think of a detective movie and it made me think of the term uh, it kind of comes across as Viet Noir. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> you did it, Dave. Nailed you it. You did it. I nailed it. Uh, thank you. Viet Noir. Yep. And then of course the whole Dennis Hopper character is so quotable, you know, and I think especially in the Zeitgeist out there is that little monologue he gives where he's like what are they going to say, man? That 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 he's a kind man? That he's a wise man? No, man. That's mm-hmm. that seems mm-hmm. like a character that's made it out there. So the movie begins, and like you predicted, it takes place during the Vietnam War, and it does have a lot of carnage, atrocities, and inner turmoil among the characters. Now, Brian, you also correctly predicted that the music uh not flight but ride of the valkyries would be played on speakers on a helicopter going over the jungle it's so good um but did you know that the doors would be heavily part of this movie no i didn't and i was very happy to hear them oh me too and i I think they fit really well in this film, not only because they just they're so quintessential like to the to the sixties and seventies. Um maybe seventies, I'm not sure when Jim Morrison died, but it just like tr- really transported me to that era. Um and yeah. they're they're so like psychedelic, you know, so I think they were played in times where uh in moments that, that were particularly psychedelic. Um so yeah yeah overall i was very impressed by the music yes not just like not just like the actual songs but also um just sort of like the, the score the score yeah it really in in many moments served to heighten the tension a lot um so oh yeah the, yeah it was very well done yeah, and I mean, you're right, The Doors fits right in. It's almost like those songs were made for the movie, the way they slot in so well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the way this movie opens, I think, 
that opening shot plus the music, you know, the opening shot of the forest and then the music comes in and then the explosion. This is definitely, as you said, a movie that grabs you immediately. And also, um, there's that really great helicopter sound effects in the background before the explosion. It just the sound design on this movie is really good. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I noticed that as well. We get this great opening scene and we get Martin Sheen's really kind of like almost the best use of voiceover I've seen in a movie. I have trouble thinking of a film that employs voiceover better than this film. That's sweet, sweet Vietnam. Yeah. And then we get the mission briefing. And the thing that I think is so funny about that scene is how hungover Martin Sheen clearly is during it. Yeah. It's like they really had to drag him into the shower. And then they're like, let's eat. Have all of this gross, heavy food with us. <laughs> yeah, you want some uh, some roast beef and shrimp with heads on? Ugh, yeah. Uh, and so Captain Willard, after freaking out in his hotel room, is given the mission to go and terminate Colonel Kurtz with extreme prejudice. And then he is put on a boat and we meet our boat crew we've got the cool and collected chief we've got the high-strung chef we've got druggy surfer lance and larry fishburn as mr clean mr clean mr clean clean and immediately we get another great cameo when they meet the air cav and this is like such a good part of this movie uh there's so many incredibly cool long unbroken shots and the character of colonel kilgore played by robert duvall what did you think of this guy oh he i mean he was pretty epic i mean just everything mm -hmm. like the way he carried himself you know and his sort of style you know the like cavalry hat and the I, I don't know if that was a bandana or ascot or what, but he's just like, yeah, he's got flair in the Vietnam War. OK. And just he's so blackly comic, like the way when all the explosions happen, he just never flinches and he's the only one. Right. Or there was one in particular, you know, after they landed, after they land on the beach there's an explosion that sort of happens like right next to him and he sort of just like looks over his shoulder and scowls at it as if to say like oh, what the fuck are you doing you know like <laughs> well because it's messing me. up the surfing right yeah he ignores everything in comparison to that he's like so what do you think i think it's pretty hairy out here sir no no the waves look how they break both ways <laughs> yeah six foot peaks <laughs> yeah it, there's the wounded guy he's making the big deal about giving him the water and then it's like the surfer is here and he just immediately starts ignoring him yeah yeah it was it's it was very bizarre like his sort of obsession with surfing um in the midst of all of this humor though it really gets across how absurd and fucked up the situation is like the whole thing with the death cards leaving the calling cards behind is really fucked up and just the how fucked up what they're doing is with his attitude like during this attack scene so we get the chopper attack scene which as you predicted it's an incredibly famous scene 
and the Wagner is probably the most famous part of it, and it's just so, so perfect. I also, just to throw this in, I think there's an incredibly brilliant use of the move music partway through the attack where they're playing it, and then it cuts out when they cut to the village, and it's silent, but then you hear the music start to rise as yeah. the helicopters approach. It's an, a very intelligent and clever use of that music in that right. scene. Because it's not, it's not uh, part of the film. It's part of the reality. You know, you hear it from the yes. perspective of the guys on the helicopter, and then you hear it from the perspective of the villagers. Exactly. It's not just this. It's not just this like omnipresent music. Yeah, from it's above. not. It's actually happening there. Well, it switches from being uh, what they call, um, so I think the term is diegetic, is it's actually playing in the scene versus non-diegetic, where it's the score. And mm-hmm. so it, it essentially goes from non-diegetic to diegetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, where it's like, this is, you know, it's it's happening on the helicopters, but we're getting it sort of in our own ears as the editor has mixed it in. Whereas once we get to the village... It's still the editor mixing in it, but the perspective we're getting is that of the people actually in the scene. Yeah. Which is very, very cool. But uh, continuing with how hilarious Kilgore is, there's this line after a uh, rebel has blown up one of his choppers. He just goes, fucking savages. <laughs> yeah. And oh, with boy. all this stuff going on around him, you know? And then, yeah, the... <laughs> Everything about the surfing is hilarious. How he he forces those guys to go out and surf during the battle. It's yeah. like you can either fight or you can surf, and they're they're like trying to surf with all these explosions blowing them off their surfboards. I know. Yeah, they're literally being blown out of the water <laughs> on their surfboards. The the whole air calves section. I think you could actually like pull this out of the movie and make it its own short film, and it would still work. It's it's the best part of the movie in my personal opinion. I love it. Um, it, yeah, it was definitely very impressive. I think it it served a great purpose, which was just to kind of get you into the absurdity of everything and the brutality, like immediately. Totally, um, because you have this um, sort of um, dichotomy between you know his quest for surfing and like uh, you know killing people at the same time. So you're sort of it left me questioning, like. It seems like people, I don't know how to phrase this, but um, everything is kind of stood on its head. People's priorities are totally out of whack. You know, life is meaningless. Yeah. All that matters yeah. is, is you know, surfing. And it just, yeah, it had this yeah. very bizarre quality to it. Yeah, you're you're being dropped into this crazy place. Yeah, exactly. So sadly, we have to leave the air cav behind and continue up the river. We get a brief interlude where we go searching for mangoes, and I'm curious: did the tiger startle you? Yes, that was a that was definitely a jump, uh, jump moment for me. I like that part in particular. I think it's a very beautiful part of this movie. This is a gorgeous film in general. I think it's beautifully shot but in that scene like the colors are just really spectacular like the green of the jungle and the blue of the bucket they're carrying it's just it's quite lovely Mm, yeah and so then we get to the uso show and um oh uh john milius the writer mentioned that as much as this is based on heart of darkness he incorporated themes also from like 
uh, Dante's Inferno and also the Odyssey. So he had this conception of Kilgore being like the Cyclops, which is this art, uh, this obstacle that has to either be tricked or overcome somehow to get past. And, you know, they trick him by using the surfing angle. Then we get to the USO show, which is the Sirens. Okay. Right? Yeah. Sure. And uh, one thing that I do like about this that I only just noticed this time is that the guy comes out to introduce the the girls and he mentions that all the soldiers are there as part of Operation Brute Force. Is that real? I don't know, but that is a hilarious name for an operation. (laughs) Yeah. Just get in there, guys. Brute Force. And also, I, I I don't know what you thought of the show, but I was a little curious as to what exactly this show was. Like, so the girls just come out and dance around just a little like bit? shake it. Yeah, it was very strange. I was, I, I was unsure if it was like, was it a dance show? Was it a strip show? For a moment, I, I thought the guy was going to sing. Yeah, like the show gets interrupted, but where was it going to go from there? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was very strange. Yeah, indeed it was. But anywho, they move on. And then we get to the boat massacre. Now, I oh, mentioned wait, that before, uh, we, before we leave the, oh, yeah? uh, the USO show, there there was a great voiceover part during during or, you know, as the show sort of devolves into chaos where... Willard talks about how Charlie has no USO shows or, you know, has very little entertainment. And for Charlie, um, there, there is only victory or death. Um, yeah, which I found very interesting. And I actually thought that it, it made me think like, Oh, this is a suicide mission, you know, or he thinks of this as like, a suicide mission he's sort of not entertained by the show um he sort of is like solely focused on what he has to do and i think he thinks of himself as having only uh, the, the only options are, are victory or death for him yeah i mean he's probably right about that although i think it also is a good quote for putting into stark relief the challenge that is faced by any occupying army which is that you know, for your opponent, this is a matter of life or death, home being free or home being occupied. Whereas, you know, the the army that is there from afar, this isn't, you know, this isn't their land. And so, you know, to them, they always have this, not to be so on the nose about it, this siren call of the ability to go home that's always going to be sapping their morale a little bit. Right. Yeah, and oh, interestingly, that I mean, that's almost uh, the the sh- the show itself is kind of a metaphor for that because the the Playboy yeah. girls literally things get a little hairy and they pick up and get the hell out of there, and everybody on the and ground is, that too. is just left there. <laughs> yeah, and and the the guys are all climbing on the thing, being like, you know, uh, I want to like go with. And I just realized that all of the costumes are all, like, kitsch Americana. Like, all the girls are dressed as, like, cowgirls, American Indians, all things that hearken to the United States. Yep. Oh, my God. Did we just stumble ass backwards onto an actual insight? I think we did. We did it. Holy shit, Brian. Let's wrap it here. Digital high five. It's not getting better than this. 
nailed it. <laughs> um, so sadly, we leave the United States and the hot girls behind, and we continue on into one of the more upsetting parts of the movie, which is the boat massacre. I mentioned earlier that um, Coppola allowed a lot of improv, and this scene was actually the cast's idea. They wanted to incorporate something that referenced, in a way, the My Lai Massacre. Mm, okay. So that's what this that. was about. Oh, it, it was a terrible, terrible atrocity that American soldiers committed during the Vietnam War, and it was one of the things that uh, influenced public perception about the war. Hmm, I see. Um, yeah, I don't have time to get into it here, but it was pretty horrible and on a much more terrible scale than what we see in this. But it is similar in that it is a group of innocent people who wind up getting guns down by the United States. We already talked about uh, Willard's brief moment of not cruelty, but uh, cold calculating murderousness, I suppose. But he has a great quote as they're moving away here where he talks about we cut them down with a machine gun and then give them a Band-Aid. Talking about like the hypocrisy of the American occupation. And he has a line too about how he's come to really hate the lies associated with all that. And that's actually that's something that is repeated by Kurtz later. That it, more than the, the bloodshed, he hates the lies. Yeah, I mean, I think it it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, there's sort of this is something that's touched on several times where there's, there is this hypocrisy of, uh, I think we see it in the, in the, the injured soldier who, um, Kilgore gives the canteen to, you know, it's like, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to murder this guy. I'm going to blow up his village, but I'm going to be nice to him and give him a little bit of water or like, you know, yeah, aren't woman, I merciful? this woman who you just shot with a machine gun for no good reason. Now you're going to help her. It's and, and he's sort of like Willard by shooting her just sort of dispatches with that fantasy, you know, and says like, yes, you know, don't kid yourself. You're not helping anyone here. You know, you're be, you know, be confronted with the reality of the horror that you're, that you're inflicting. Yeah. And you know, it's, it can be seen as a kiss-off line, but his statement, I told you not to stop, Willard is essentially saying, as you pointed out, this is your fault. Like, I may have just murdered this woman, but she would still be alive if you had not stopped as I asked you to. Yeah. Yeah. We then get to the Dulong Bridge, and I think this point here where the... the Action, but I suppose really it's it's what Willard does in killing that woman. It marks a bit of a turning point in this movie, I think, where we start to move away from blackly comic to just black. Like the film takes a darker turn right here, I think. It's not as funny anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I I also noticed that around this time the the music changed as well. So I, I think there was oh, interesting. There, there was really an intentional shift like the Wagner, for instance, you know, it's, it's sort of epic and like sweeps you up mm -hmm. a little bit. And, but on the, on the bridge, there's this very like dissonant tinny score. Um, yes. Which like, it just made things seem very unnerving 
very chaotic and and disorganized you know which is the opposite of you know uh a, a composition like you know like wagner's totally you know that's that's an interesting way of looking at it huh i hadn't thought about that in terms of the music what i thought about with the music when i was watching it this time was it was a little bit related to the fact that this is where uh lance drops acid um once they get off he's the one who goes with willard for whatever reason it seems kind of dumb to get in the middle of that when you're tripping but whatever they get off the boat and it it's like they're stepping into a bad trip like i i uh, the music to me struck me as kind of like nightmare circus music almost that that's a great way to describe it yeah yeah it's got this like in a horror film like a a uh, child's um, music box that's like a little off key or something yeah, that's yeah, just exactly. like creepy child music or creepy circus music yeah and i think also the, the way all those lights are strung up along the bridge adds to that sort of nightmare circus feel it actually looks a little like a fucked up circus as they're going through it and that's certainly the situation that they find themselves in um yeah. going through this terrible battle yeah i mean it it was the scene was was a little bit on the nose in terms of the yeah. shift from like you know kilgore who is like okay this guy is in charge and like not worried about anything and this scene is like nobody's in charge you know it was like okay we get it like mm-hmm. this is total madness got it good job that's true um you know what always stood out to me and this to explain my previous comment what i always remembered from the scene was this character the roach who i always remembered him as the grenade sniper yeah that that guy's off in the distance like screaming off afar and he manages to hit him with the grenade launcher and there's this like exchange between him and willard where willard's like you know who's in command here yeah 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 he just he's just like, <laughs> right it, and he just was, walks away yeah it was so uh it was disconcerting very like, disconcerting very unnerving it's like yeah but i'm not gonna tell you nor am i gonna ask you if you want to know just like yeah i know Goodbye. i know that character just kind of like floats in and out of that movie as like this avatar of death <laughs> it's yeah. very creepy yeah um, that that scene is very uh now that you mention it is it is sort of bad trippy you know it, yeah like these guys are all kind of like they're very wide-eyed and they're like lit in very creepy ways um oh yeah and the light comes in and out yeah. i mean you know you're in for a bad scene right away when the boat comes up and all of those soldiers start jumping in the water screaming take me with you oh my god yeah that was horrifying like what's going on here i know i'd be terrified i if i was the chief i wouldn't have wanted to keep going from that point on definitely not and rightly so because in the very next scene we get an ambush and mr clean dies poor mr clean Speaking of on the nose, the having his mom's voice recorder going as he's dead is pretty uh, emotionally manipulative. It's like, make sure you come on back to us. I love you, son. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, whatever. It's fine. I did want to mention, though, 
in this scene, when the ambush starts, a flare goes right over Lawrence Fishburne's fucking shoulder, and it is so close. I can't help but wonder, like, if that was safe. Dude, I I know. Um, it almost takes this, his head off. This scene in in particular, you know, there's just so many things coming at the boat and at the cameras, but the movie overall, I was wondering, like, if anybody was hurt or killed, because it seems like. You know, with all the the planes and helicopters and and pyrotechnics, it seemed like a very dangerous film to make. Uh, apart from Martin Sheen's heart attack, no humans were hurt or killed during the making of this movie. More on that later. Yeah, no, nice Easter egg. Yeah, thanks. I also uh, just want to make one other comment, too, about the bridge scene and uh, Lance's acid trip. It really seems to me like dropping that tab of acid halfway through the movie breaks that character's brain because he does not act the same from that point on. Like prior to that, he's just like a regular like spacey L.A. guy. Yeah. But after this, he is a total fucking spaced out weirdo absolutely yeah like the next day well yeah the next day it was it was light out it was like he was still tripping and i yeah, was i was forever like, wait like this he said that was his last tab of acid and it was like that was the last tab he ever needed because he's tripping the rest of the yeah, movie because <laughs> it lasts the rest of his life right exactly I'm glad you noticed that, too, because that always struck me about this character. Even when I was a kid, I was like, he does not seem like he ever recovers from that acid trip. Yeah. So after Mr. Clean dies, uh, we get our second ambush and the chief dies uh, and also uh, briefly attempts to murder Willard before he goes. That was really weird. Why did that happen? I think it's because the two of them have been a little bit at odds throughout the course of the film. And the chief has never really liked Willard or what Willard has been asking his crew to do. And Willard, I mean, has never done anything to make himself sit better with the chief. You know, he he kills that woman and then blames it on him. And he forces them to go on this incredibly dangerous mission that then kills Clean, who you get the sense that chief views as a bit of a not to the level of surrogate son, but someone who he felt responsible for. You know, I just think the chief never liked Willard and blames him for everything that happened, which now includes his own death. And on his way out, he wanted to take him with him. Yeah, I suppose so. It just—it's the best I got. A, it seemed a little strange to me. It was just like, okay. I agree. I was meaning to do this later, but this is clearly the end of the line for me. So I'm gonna yeah, last chance. Try to, yeah, here's, I'm gonna try to murder you. It, yeah. it, it was no, also I, I, strange I where he, he he like his. I don't know if it was his last words, but he was just like a spear. <laughs> you yeah. know, as this as he noticed the spear, he's like, oh, a spear. Well, that is a weird thing to see, I suppose. Yeah, that's curious. So we finally arrive at the Kurtz compound and, you know, up until this point, I don't feel like it's a long movie. And I say this a lot as a compliment to other films and that they're long, but they don't feel long. And I think this movie has it going for it as well. 
until now. This is the part of the film where I think it starts to show its length a little bit. If they'd stuck the ending a little bit better, I think this would be a really perfect film, but I don't think they do. But it sounds like we disagree about that a little bit, so maybe we'll get into that. Um, we arrive at the compound, and it is beautiful. All the shots of the natives and everything as they arrive is really gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, and they're like all... Uh, there's sort of like a line of them on boats, like all painted, all like facing out, like as if they're waiting for them. Very creepy. Yeah, deathly silent too. Yeah. Something about that like whole body and face, like white chalky war makeup it has always been very creepy to me. It's like they're, they, they look like ghosts or something. And then Dennis Hopper arrives. Hooray. He's hilarious in this movie. Dennis Hopper is the unnamed photographer. In all of these early scenes where Hopper is showing them around, I kept feeling like there's a real cult film to everything that's happening, you know? And, I mean, that was going on back then at the time. There's even a, a brief shot of uh, Charles Manson in one of the newspapers they're looking at on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah. it certainly has a cult vibe to it. There's some hilarious lines from Dennis Hopper when he's talking about Colonel Kurtz where he's like, did you know that if is the middle part of life? <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that one. Yeah. Oh, and then we see we come to a stairway covered in human heads. I mean, there's bodies all over this compound, but we get a stairway covered in heads. And Dennis Hopper's reaction is sometimes he goes too far. He's the <laughs> first one to admit it. <laughs> yeah that was good yeah and 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 when describing uh how good a person curse really is he's his example that he goes to he's like he reads poetry out loud man <laughs> yeah it's like oh my god what is happening in this place so willard makes an agreement with chief that chief is going to call in an airstrike if Willard doesn't come back. And I want to take this moment, too, to point out that I think throughout this movie, Chief is really the only character who has an appropriate response to things. That's true. Yeah, everybody else is, like, either kind of weirdly happy-go-lucky or, like, super steel. Yeah. You know, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like uh, Mr. Clean is just like, yeah, whatever, man. And everybody else is just kind of like unfazed, but yeah. Uh, wait, yeah. Do you, chief or chef? Oh, chef. Sorry, yes. chef, chef. Yeah, he's the only one who's like freaking the hell out, like everybody should be. Right. You know, he sees a tiger and he freaks out. He sees all these people get gunned down and he's upset. And then we get to the Kurtz compound and he sees what's going on and he's like, I don't fucking like it here. This place is nuts. Let's kill this guy and get the fuck home. <laughs> Great. Plan. And I'm like, yes, chef. That is the appropriate response to the situation that you found yourself in. Let's yeah. kill this guy and go home. Yeah. Whereas Willard's only just like, alright, let's see where this goes. <laughs> right. Yeah, and well, where it goes is to Kurtz, and again, he's so fat. Like, okay, maybe this character has been built up too much by the cor the the description of him throughout the course of the movie, and nobody could have lived up to it. But the fact that that's what he looks like really kind of ruins it. 
you know, the first shot of him, it, it just doesn't match what we've been built up to see. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, I didn't think about this at the time. Well, I did in a way because they they spend all this time talking about how he went through jump school at 38, you know, and he was like, he had just seemingly recently been trained as a paratrooper. And I was like, there's no way that guy jumped out of an airplane. Like he's too, how he's could the airplane fat. even take off with that guy? Right. I like how, yeah, he, he certainly doesn't seem like a soldier and certainly not like somebody who has spent, you know, months, if not years in the jungle <laughs> during right. wartime. Yeah, or even as someone who's supposed to be brilliant. Like, I know the idea is that he went crazy, but honestly, the the, the wackadoo shit that he says at the end of this movie and the manner that he says it, it just doesn't live up to what I have been made to anticipate as far as this character. Like, he could have been crazy without being, like, pointlessly crazy. Yeah. I, you're right about that. I mean, I did sort of enjoy some of the things he said, but overall it was a little disappointing that he didn't really like illuminate like what he was all about, like what yes. he was doing there, what his intention was. It it sort of, it it didn't really make sense to me a lot. Yes, I, I agree with you. There's a lot about what he says and the way he's he's acting that's striking but there's nothing behind it you know i i I thought about it a little bit like this like so at this part of the movie it's up until this point it's been a really good vietnam movie but starting here it's not a vietnam movie anymore and to a certain extent it's not really about anything anymore you know, the movie it gets increasingly crazy as you go upriver, and that's the idea. But up until now, that craziness was all commenting on something. It was all commenting on the American uh, intervention in Vietnam, and the craziness was about that. But at this point, it just becomes crazy without anything to say. It's just crazy for its own sake. Definitely. Yeah, like, it. it, it was not clear... It was not clear what his end game was or like, right. like who is he now aligned with? Who is he? Who are his enemies? What are his intentions? Like all that was very vague. Right. Well, what is the point of any of this? You know, say what you will about Kilgore. We know what he's about and the things he does are crazy, but there's a reason for it. And, you know, all the other awful stuff we've seen up to this point, we knew why it was happening and it reflected something. This is just, I don't know what this is. I will say there are a few diamonds in the rough, though, and all that. There's one line in particular that I liked very much, um, which is when Kurtz says, you have the right to kill me, but not to judge me. I thought that was a good line mm-hmm. that yeah. sort of that that sort of felt reflective of like the the soldier who's gone too far and maybe can't be put back you know the idea that he's this rabid dog who has to be put down but you can't really blame him for being what he is yeah right that, yeah. that makes sense right. i mean so maybe maybe yeah. the maybe the whole 
I mean, this is probably not intentional given what you had told me about Coppola and the production, but but maybe the vagueness and sort of the pointlessness is meant to intentionally highlight the pointness the the pointlessness of you know war a war like this in general where like you know you're searching for meaning you know and you go through all these horrible things thinking that you're going to achieve something and then in the end you realize like oh yeah none of this makes sense there was no point to this after all yeah i like that but i could just be you know that could be my post interpretation i don't know if that was actually Um, you know the intention symbolically yeah you know i mean i think because i've now seen what the situation it was while it was happening it it is like an ex post facto explanation to try and justify it but if i hadn't known that that would make sense you know and to a certain extent you can i mean you can feel free to throw out the creator's intentions i don't think you have to be wedded to that it can be whatever your interpretation is you know yeah that's a that's a good point so i and i I like that that that's a that's an interesting way of looking at it yeah i like that that's that's cool i want to think about that more but anyway uh just moving on to the rest of this movie uh one thing i want to point out the inoculated arms story that is an urban myth that never really happened ah good okay yeah Uh, people often wonder that after seeing this mill and uh, we'll cross that off the list of atrocities right there are plenty of real ones don't worry um oh i know I've, i've been to the uh museum of uh the war remnants museum in ho chi minh city which was formerly called the Museum of Chinese and American War Atrocities. And, uh, yeah. Not the French? No, they shy away from the French, actually. I mean, the Chinese were there for a lot longer, and I think the Americans did a lot more. It's mostly about about what they call the American War of Aggression, a.k.a. what we call the Vietnam War. Um, But, yeah, there's... It's a really heavy place. A lot of uh, there's an entire wing about Agent Orange and how it's still affecting people, you know, three, four generations later with birth defects and stuff. So anyway, yeah, yeah, heavy. Well, anyway, we get to our climactic final scene: the horror, the horror. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Willard's ultimate assassination of? Uh, Colonel Kurtz. Oh, I should also throw out, just plot-wise, uh, in between that happening, poor Chef finally bites it. Kurtz cuts his head off. And Dennis Hopper decides he's finally had enough and gets the fuck out of Dodge. But um, Willard finally kills Kurtz. What did you think? I'm glad that he did it. Um, I I would have been a little disappointed if he just, like, became a fanboy or whatever like brainwashed um like that other guy you know the the his predecessor yeah. who was sent there you know i think whatever nonsense kurtz was up to you know needed to be stopped in some way and i i think that i don't know just for for willard you know to give him some closure or something to feel like he was doing something positive 
I think it was I think it was good. Uh, I'm a little surprised he was able to get away with it. It seemed like maybe Kurtz wanted him to to just kill him and sort of relieve him from his his burden. Um, yeah, I agree. He got, like I guess there was that ceremony going on, so everybody was like distracted. So he only had to get past one guard. But it seemed like for this guy who was like revered and seemingly like super protected, he snuck in there pretty damn easily. True. I guess I would say it's probably back to that observation you made that Kurtz probably was at a point where if he was attacked, he was going to fight for his life, but there was a part of him that was sick of it all and deep down wanted Willard to do it. Willard even speculates that himself at one point where he's like, I think Kurtz wants me to kill him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's definitely a striking sequence. You know, you've got the doors coming back in. Uh, you've got that incredibly iconic shot of him rising out of the water and the face paint. And oh, then his, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I and then like his that. ninja-like infiltration of the temple. It's all very cool. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, you have that native ceremony going on in the background. Uh, to answer the question that you haven't asked yet, but I imagine maybe is in the back of your mind. Oh, they really uh, killed that bull. That water buffalo was really killed, yes. Yeah. Now, the <laughs> filmmakers did not kill the water buffalo. What happened was they actually shipped in a native tribe of the Philippines to act as extras in these scenes. And during uh, some downtime, they started performing a ceremony just of their own and Eleanor Coppola went and retrieved Francis being like hey this really interesting native ceremony is happening you should come film it and so part of the ceremony was they killed unfortunately watching the documentary I observed them killing an awful lot more animals than just the water buffalo including chickens and pigs and stuff and it wasn't great viewing but um Anyway, so yeah, so part of that ceremony was they really did kill that water buffalo, so that is uh, not faked. Wow, that's that's uh, very surprising, but kind of incredible. It is. Um, I, I assumed that it was that it was part of the film. It didn't. It didn't read as like uh, real, I guess, because it was very ceremonial. You know, it seemed. Yeah, that was oh, interesting. I think it does a good job of allowing them to get across what Willard is doing to Kurtz without having to show big fat Marlon Brando in a fight sequence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, they just needed to show the, uh, the machete going up and down and some blood on his face. <laughs> I do want to mention one last thing, which is that after Willard kills Kurtz, he finds that written quotation, drop the bomb, exterminate them all, which is from the original book. I I think this is in the wrong place in the movie. Like, So a criticism I think I have in general of the film is that the film takes too long to end after Kurtz dies. Like, I, I think once Willard has made the kill, he should just walk out of there, grab Lance, get on the boat, and the movie's over. But it takes an extra, like, I don't know how long, but it's too much time for him to finally leave. Huh, okay. Part of it is him finding that, and... <sighs> The other thing is that I think he should have found that before he killed Kurtz, not just mm-hmm. for timing's sake, but I think that that should have been 
his trigger yeah. to finally act. You know, that should have been the thing that broke him out of his stupor that he was in. And finally, yeah. you know, he sees this and he's like, oh, okay, this guy wants to wipe out this whole place with nuclear weapons. I have to kill him now. Yeah, you know? that would make a lot more sense for for a motivating factor. Yeah, so that's just something I thought of. And anyway, and so then we get the iconic line, the horror, the horror, and the movie is over. Ta-da! Indeed. Indeed. So, how did this movie do? Well, Brian, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) This movie currently has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. The movie made $78 million domestically and $150 million worldwide on an ultimately quite bloated $31.5 million budget. And remember, I told you that the initial amount they raised was only 13 Wow. The film critically was acclaimed at the time, sort of. It won the Palme d'Or uh, in 1979 at Cannes. Although it split, it shared the award with another movie called The Tin Drum, which I'm not familiar with. It was nominated for eight Oscars. Best Film Editing, Art Direction, Writing. Robert Duvall got a Supporting Actor nomination. Best Director and Best Picture. And it won for Best Sound, which we talked about and I think was uh, quite well-deserved. And Best Cinematography, which I also think is quite well-deserved. 100%. Yeah. Reviews were a little bit mixed at first. I mean, one, keep in mind that this film came out with all of this negative press attached to it because uh, Coppola's struggles trying to make it were tabloid fodder for years leading up to the release. So it came out with a lot of baggage. But Ebert at the time said apocalypse now achieves greatness not by analyzing our experience in vietnam but by recreating it in characters and images something of that experience he wound up putting it on his list of great films saying that apocalypse now is the best vietnam film and one of the greatest of all films on the other hand frank rich writing for time said while much of the footage is breathtaking, Apocalypse Now is emotionally obtuse and intellectually empty. Hmm. I I can see why someone would say that, but I don't think I agree. I yeah. I, don't I, I think this you know, a lot of critics said something kind of like this, and I think they were too affected by those final scenes. It it you know we may disagree on it, but I do think the film kind of falls apart in its last act. And because that's the last thing you saw, you kind of forget how good it was leading up to that point. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that makes some sense. Yeah. Yeah. But nowadays, the movie is considered a masterpiece. Empire Magazine, which is a British magazine, ranked the helicopter attack scene with Ride of the Valkyries as the most memorable film scene ever. That also could be close to the truth. Hmm. It's certainly one that I have loved for a long time. And it's one of the most yeah. homaged and parodied scenes in so many different ways. I mean, the music in particular, but also just, you know, the helicopters sweeping in, coming in off the ocean is such an iconic shot, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It, and that scene just takes so much orchestration you know there's so many things going on at once it's just kind of astounding it is an incredibly impressive piece of filmmaking and that kind of brings us 
to the end. Brian, what did you think, ultimately, of Apocalypse Now? Ultimately, I very much enjoyed this, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning. You know, in talking about it, I, I do agree with you that the third act sort of falls a little flat and the ending was a little disappointing. It didn't give me the closure that I wanted. You know, so I, I guess in that way, like the story was lacking a little bit, but everything leading up to that and just the way that the film was made was very impressive, gripping. You know, I was, it, it, like you said, this is a long film, but I was never like looking at my watch. I was, I was very, uh, entertained and intrigued throughout and yeah overall like definitely give it an a it's funny that that's the way you should phrase it because even in this movie's flaws you can't fault it for ambition and speaking to that exact thought francis ford coppola said while making this film i am really going for it here i'd rather get an f than a b Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, he really went for it. Yeah. And it sounds like, at least for you, knocked it out of the park. Definitely. Glad to hear all that shit that he went through was worthwhile. <laughs> right. Uh, in the end, man, I agree with you. I love this film. I always have. And I continue to after seeing it again after a long time of not having seen it. And learning more about it by watching that documentary was really, really interesting. So if yeah, I'm gonna have to check yeah, that out. If that, you're curious to learn more, it's, it sounds like the the story is is really interesting. It's a good watch. It's it's a lot of fun and very insightful. So Brian, last question: Better late or never, buddy? Definitely better late. Um, I thought as much. Yeah, I'm very happy I saw this. Um, definitely a good one. Well, right on, man. I really enjoyed going through this film with you. Glad I could show you one of my personal favorites, and I'm glad it worked out and that you enjoyed. Me too. Me too, yeah. This has been fun. If you would like to contact the podcast, we're available at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at betterlate underscore pod. That's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. And Brian, I cannot wait to get you back on for another movie. Thanks, Dave. I'd uh, love to come back. Cool, dude. Well, catch you later. Peace. Hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like. Hell. I hate it already, and it's only been a few hours. I'm so tired. We get up at five. At first, I thought they'd handed me the wrong dossier. I couldn't believe they wanted this man dead. Third generation West Point, top of his class, Korea, airborne, about a thousand decorations, etc., etc. I've loved you in Wall Street! <laughs>